Glad that you're here. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, just great to be with you and wonderful to have the opportunity to open up God's Word for us this morning as we continue our series. It's a seven-week series called Abide, A People Apprenticed to Jesus in Worship. And we're learning what it means to abide in God's presence and what it means to respond to God through the practice of worship. We are hardwired to worship. Every culture in every age has looked beyond itself to something ultimate, some kind of authority above or at least at the center of things. American essayist Ralph Waldo Emerson, who didn't believe the Bible, still observed this. A person will worship something, have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our heart, but it will out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. So why should we choose to make the God revealed to us in the Scriptures as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the one that we worship? Why is this God more worthy than any God presented to us in other religions, or more worthy of money, or power, or intellect, relationships, some ideology, or nation? What would it look like to worship this God? Over the last few weeks, we've already seen how worship expresses our deepest hungers and thirsts. It releases our gratitude. It inspires our surrender. And today, we're looking at what it means to worship God with awe. If you're a guest with us this morning, I want to welcome you especially. We're so glad that you're here. And I hope that um, even if you're new to Jesus, that you will find something in this message that speaks to your longing to connect with something transcendent, something beyond you, and also something imminent, something close to you. Everyone, no matter where they're at in life, benefits from asking, is what I'm giving my greatest attention and my highest praise worthy of the honor that I'm giving it? So as we look at the idea of awe to, today, I'm looking specifically at this question. Is what I'm fearing right now worthy of my fear? Could a sense of awe towards God reshape what I have been fearing most? So I invite you as we begin to look into God's Word together, would you pray with me? Let's ask God to guide us. God, we gather here in your name because our hearts long to connect with, with the life at the center of the universe. We want to know the deepest truth. We want to find our way to you. And so, God, we pray that by your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word, you would guide us to those things that we need to understand today so that we could walk more closely in the purposes that you've created us for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So when have you experienced awe? We'll talk a little bit more in a moment about what the Bible means by awe, but 
When would you say that you were overcome or impacted by an experience of awe? I've had the chance over the last four years or so to visit Cannon Beach, um, four times actually, and man, that is a beautiful place. And while I was there, I really tried to take in the natural wonder of the place. This was a place that I was sitting on a Sunday afternoon, standing on that cliff, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. The waves are rolling in, the beach is stretching out for miles and miles and miles and miles, and the wind is whipping the tree, and the colors are vivid, and I just sat there taking it all in. I was filled with awe. What a joy to just witness to pause, to, to settle into this masterpiece of God's creation. In a similar way, last summer, Cindy and I had the chance to travel to Cinque Terre, those five iconic villages that are perched on the cliffs of the Mediterranean in Italy. And as we hiked, you just come, a, come across every new crest of the hill or around every corner on a cliff, and again, you're just blown away by these incredible blues of the sky and the ocean and just this incredible place on earth that, that we just had this opportunity to visit. And I, the, the pictures don't even capture how incredible the beauty is. I'd say I also experience awe when I see great live music, right? It's one thing to listen to a recording and you, you know that they take all the perfect pieces of a whole bunch of different takes and they edit them all together so you have this perfect take that comes out on an album, right? But man, when you can see a concert of people who just know their craft and are blowing, blowing music out of the water, you know, as they do it, it's incredible. And, and uh, there's a picture there of a concert where a few of us were at it a number of years ago, a group called the Commissionaires. And um, apparently they haven't even really practiced, but that night there was something about it Right, Sid? They were, they were in the pocket. Like they just, they were so tight. And we just, all of us are sitting around the table in the venue going, this is amazing. This is, it was awe-inspiring. And it was so cool to be able to say we were there that night. What about you? What are some of the experiences what, that gave you that encounter of awe? Maybe it was when you saw your bride come down the aisle. Maybe it's when you're watching your wife give birth to one of your children. Was it seeing kids that you taught rise to the occasion and come up with something brilliant? Maybe you saw a piece of art or architecture that just left you breathless. Maybe you stood on the deck of an aircraft carrier. What's common to all these experiences? The dictionary defines awe as an emotion combining dread, veneration, and wonder that is inspired by authority or by the sacred or sublime. The Hebrew and Greek words that the Bible uses to describe awe talk about things like reverence, discretion, downcast eyes, modesty, and fear. In awe, we're overwhelmed by our own smallness because we've encountered majesty and power and wisdom that is unquestionably and immeasurably greater than what we could be or what we could create for ourselves. Maybe the power of a superior military force, a superior teaching authority, 
or the power of God displayed through His mighty works of creation, redemption, or healing. In the Bible, it's not just an emotional reaction to something. As Pastor Jerry Bridges has written, our fear of God must be a settled state of mind, an attitude of awe, reverence, honor, and adoration, a fixed mental outlook that isn't dependent on feelings that come and go. When you think about having fear before God, does that sound like a good thing? Some of us may have experienced religion that overemphasized the dread side of awe and fear, maybe to promote our obedience. It's understandable if we prefer the warm and tender and intimate imagery about God over that awesome or even fearsome picture of God. And yet, the Bible repeatedly calls God's people and even the whole world to stand in awe of God or literally to fear God. Well, there's many places we could go in Scripture, but I want to begin with a story that's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 5. You can turn there in your Bible if you want to follow along. And as as we read this, I want you to imagine the desert-hardened nation of Israel camped together on the borders of the promised land. The generation who was miraculously rescued from slavery in Egypt has died off in the wilderness. And it's a new generation who's actually going to get to experience the fulfillment of God's promise. They've spent their childhood training in the wilderness. And now the book of Deuteronomy is kind of a graduation message delivered by their leader, Moses, as they prepare to launch into their life's work. So in the first few chapters of the book, Moses is going over a recollection of the journey that has brought them to this point. And here in chapter 5, Moses recounts the original fearsome encounter that Israel had with God at Mount Sinai. It's first recorded in Exodus 19 and 20. Moses remembers it again. This is the place where God spoke a new identity over these people, that they were no longer slaves, but they were a holy nation, a royal priesthood before God, people that he cherished and loved. And this is where God gave them the Ten Commandments. But now listen how how Moses recalls the event, beginning in verse 23. He says, When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, All the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, The Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we've seen that a person can live even if God speaks to them. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go, and they're saying, you, Moses, go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. You notice what happens here. 
When God shows up in all of his glory and majesty, the people see it as these terrifying clouds of smoke and fire. Somehow Moses went into that cloud and came back out without dying. But no one else was ready to take that risk. In the face of God's majesty, they were like, nope, can't do it. Let's, how about from now on, that's just the way we're going to do it. You go in there. <laughs> we'll be out here. Trembling in fear, they wanted to keep their distance from God. Instead of God himself, they just wanted Moses to pass along what he heard. It's kind of the safer way to go. So how did God respond? Let's look at verse 28 and 29. Moses says, The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I've heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, and here we hear the heart of God coming through. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. God doesn't take offense at the Israelites' reluctance. He, he says everything they said was good. He's willing to play the long game. He's working with their apprehensions and fears about being near God. But he expresses this long-term desire for his people. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and to keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. So how does that sound to you? Oh, that, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. Does fear seem like a good way to have a relationship? If a husband says, oh, that my wife's heart would be inclined to fear me, you want to help the wife, don't you? If a boss says, oh, that my employees' hearts would be inclined to fear me, you might start looking for a new job. Right? Does anyone have the right to strike fear into somebody else? How is it a good thing for God to say, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me? It's really interesting. Throughout Israel's story, you can follow it throughout the Old Testament. God keeps calling his people to fear him as an act of survival. And not surviving God, it's an act of survival in a world full of things to fear. And just to summarize, in the Old Testament, to fear the Lord meant two things, that you would not fear the other gods, the gods that you saw and you heard about in the other nations. And number two, that you would remember God's power, the power that had rescued them from the power the other gods had in their lives. God said, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. Why did he say this? Perhaps because God knew that merely passing on instructions to them through Moses wouldn't be enough to conform their hearts to his loving plan for them. He wanted his people's obedience to be fueled by awe and wonder and love, not by policies and protocols. 
You see, if we don't fear God, we will be slave to all kinds of other fears. If we don't recognize the Lord as the true, wise, and loving God above all other authorities, then we'll be intimidated by other powers instead. Our vision will get distorted of what is real and what is true and and where everything fits. If we don't remember the power God used to rescue us, we'll begin to feel alone again. And we'll doubt the liberty He's given us. Feeling backed into a corner, we'll start thinking our only options are aggression or abandonment or addiction or greed. And that's no way to build a good world. See, a proper fear of God is protection from all the propaganda and intimidation of all that the, the, the other powers use to manipulate us. And that's why time and time time again, when the situation around his people was intimidating and threatening, God, the great and mighty God, would draw near to his people and say, do not be afraid. When they felt small under those seemingly insurmountable powers around them, God would speak through a leader or a prophet and say, do not be afraid. And throughout the Scriptures, the fear of God puts all other fears in perspective. If you fear God, you don't need to fear anything else. The fear of God frees us to walk in fearless obedience. The fear of God frees us to walk in fearless obedience. Do not be afraid. That's why the Psalms, the worship songbook of the Israelites, often calls worshipers to have a holy fear of God. So Psalm 89.7 lifts our vision to see that in the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He's more awesome than all who surround Him. Psalm 76.7 says to God, it is you alone who are to be feared. Psalm 34.9 says, fear the Lord, you His people, for those who fear Him lack nothing. God is fearsome, awesome, powerful, worthy of deep respect. Fear is appropriate and it's central to staying on track with what God is doing and not being thrown off by other fears. Now, Many people have the impression that the God of the Old Testament is more fearsome than the God of the New Testament. And it is true that in Jesus we see God's kindness and compassion more vividly than anything we saw in the Old Testament, more personally perhaps than anything we'd seen there. Jesus reveals the plan of God to reconcile all things to Himself in a way that the Old Testament only hints at. But I would argue that that new revelation of God should inspire even a greater awe of God, not diminish it. It makes God greater, not less. And to see that, I want to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, where we're going to find this ancient story of Sinai reinterpreted in light of Jesus. 
The book of Hebrews is written to followers of Jesus from a Jewish background. For the sake of their own safety, these persecuted believers were being tempted to abandon the faith and return to their roots. And throughout this book, the author tells believers, don't be afraid. Keep trusting in Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled every one of God's promises. Jesus is the true Son of God, the true priest, the true sacrifice, the true sanctuary. To know Jesus is to have all that is needed to be near God. Those who fear Him lack nothing, right? So in Hebrews 12, the author is kind of bringing his argument to a point. And he writes these words, beginning in verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. He's recalling that same mountain that Moses had described earlier. When everybody pulled back and said, Moses, you do it for us and we'll stay here. That is not the way that God is calling us to relate to him. It's never been God's intention that we would just live in cowering fear before him. So he continues, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And we could spend weeks unpacking everything that's packed into that, just that paragraph there. But I just want to get the main point here. First of all, he's saying, you have come. This is a done deal, right? Jesus said, it is finished. You have come now. You stand with Jesus Christ. You're not alone, caught between slavery behind you and this fearsome God above you. Moses went into the presence of God alone. But Jesus says to every one of us, come in with me. Before, animals and people feared death if they came too close. But Jesus offered his own life on our behalf. And now all we have to do to draw near is trust. Where once we feared God's judgment for our sin, now through the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, we are made righteous. We are made righteous. And now, wherever we gather to worship God, we're welcomed by Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, into the Holy of Holies, as close as we could be to God. And we see here, too, in this paragraph that this gathering is no mere human gathering. When Christians come to worship, it might just be a few friends in a living room with an out-of-tune guitar. It might be a band like this with an expensive sound system. 
It might be a liturgical choir whose songs are kind of filling the arches of a cathedral. But much more is going on than we can see with our natural eyes. He says we're face to face with God, our judge, who knows everything about us, but he does not condemn us. We're made righteous. Jesus, the Son of God himself, went up the mountain for us, faced all the wrath of God against sin for us, died the death we deserve to die, and was raised to life again. We're welcomed in. And more than that, when we enter in, it's not just our feeble songs being offered. We are surrounded by angels that we could never hope to count. And the centuries of men and women who faithfully followed Jesus before us are harmonizing with us as we sing. Imagine that. In her own poetic way, author Annie Dillard provokes us to to sense the gravity of what's going on in our worship. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs. She's talking about suffering Christians in the early centuries of the church. I do not find Christians sufficiently sensible of conditions. She means, do you have any idea what's going on? (laughs) Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we will never, where we can never return. Our God is not sleeping, and we don't have to wake Him. But really, if God would truly open our eyes to who He really is, what's going on in the unseen realm as we worship? Our lives and what we do with them would be irrevocably changed. The fear of God frees us to walk in fearless obedience, fearless conformity to God's purposes for us. But there are two ways that we, are, that we fail to be sufficiently uh, sensible of conditions. In other words, ways we don't fear God properly. The first, which Dillard is hinting at, is that we would forget to stand in awe of God or perhaps refuse to do that. We might be convinced of our own majesty, our own awesomeness. We might be convinced that we really should be the center of attention. Perhaps we take God's love and power for granted. We're just going through the motions without thinking about what we're doing. And so we shrug our shoulders and pay little attention to God and remain unchanged. The second is that in fearing God, we would forget the gospel. Like the Israelites at the base of the mountain or, and, and many other religions today, we might conceive of God's greatness as a barrier to knowing Him or being accepted by Him. We're aware of our own weakness, our own sin, 
the dirtiness that we feel from hurting others or hurting ourselves, and we just know, I, I can't impress him, I've probably disappointed him, you know, and shame causes us to pull away from God. But these are not what we're called to. Let's keep reading what it says in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? He's speaking of Jesus coming to give us the gospel. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably. How? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What's the author of Hebrews saying? Well, the revelation of God at Sinai provoked this terror and distance instead of obedience and intimacy. But surely this new revelation of God in Jesus Christ, this unshakable kingdom over which Jesus is king, should motivate us more and more to align our lives with Him. What's the proper response to a God who reveals Himself like this? It's not just a feeling that comes when we have a certain experience. It's a settled attitude of reverence and awe that's reflected in our whole lives. It's seeing the true worth of God in all of His greatness and His goodness. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, it's conforming our lives in every detail to what He says is true and right. So why, what difference would it make if we were to practice fear or awe of God today? Well, the powers at work in our contemporary world are more fearsome than anything Israel faced. You think of the way that technology and communications and, and, you know, military power and the way that conflicts are being stirred up, and there are so many reasons to be afraid in our world. And those are used, those fears are used by people to manipulate us more powerfully than ever. Perhaps you can think of voices in your own life, just personally, that cause you to get anxious, to stir things up in you. I know there's certain voices in my life that just get their hooks into me. I, I hear the, the words, be afraid, be very afraid. What do you fear? What stirs up your anxiety? What shakes up your world? Where do you feel exiled or imprisoned? Is there a voice in your life that intimidates you, that tears you down, that backs you into a corner, that distorts your vision of what's good and true and trustworthy? You find yourself frozen. You find yourself itching for a fight. You find yourself wanting to run away. Do you find yourself giving up things you know you should not 
because of the fears in your life. The Apostle John was exiled and imprisoned late in the first century because he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were lots of things for him to fear in his world, both for himself and for the churches that he pastored. But in his exile, Jesus came to him in a vision. And the vision was so intense that John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's reverence and awe. But then he writes, then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys. I have the authority over death and Hades. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me, God says to his people. And he says this because that is where freedom is. The fear of God frees us to walk in fearless obedience. And that's why the Apostle John writes in his letter, there is no fear in love, for perfect love drives out fear. In love, this awesome God freed us from the fear of anything but Him. So stand in awe of God and do not be afraid. Do you want to cultivate a proper awe of God? I want to share just a few things that help me cultivate awe in my life. Not just seeking out emotional experiences, but as a settled attitude. Maybe these can be helpful to you. First of all, I need to go outside or to other places of beauty on a regular basis. I kind of lose a sense of God's awesomeness when I'm just stuck in front of a computer screen or a TV for too long, right? When I sit by the ocean or I I walk by one of the beautiful West Coast trails or I watch a sunset over the mountains or sit in Westminster Abbey in mission, like that new sense of who God is, is reignited in my life. Another thing I need to do is meditate regularly on the character of God and on the gospel. I stay in scripture, even the uncomfortable parts. I make sure there's a bit of a diet of sermons and podcasts and books and music that can just kind of fuel my, my memory of who God is. Meeting with other people who remind me of the gospel and pray for me when I am being overcome by fear. Showing up, showing up regularly here and singing these songs that remind me of the greatness of God. And third, Psalm 103 encourages us to talk to ourselves. It says, praise the Lord, O my soul, and don't forget His benefits. I need to keep recalling what He's done in my life and my community and giving thanks to Him. Maybe it's in a journal or in a conversation with a friend or with songs that just remind me again, right? I widen the scope of my memory from just a day or the week that's passed. And I think about all the ways that God's been faithful to me, his provision, his comfort, his guidance, the friends and mentors he's put in my life, 
the lessons he's taught me, the life-changing impact of obedience, the temptations he's guarded me from, and the forgiveness he's offered to me for all the places where I've failed. As I do these things, as I make sure I'm outside regularly, as I meditate on his character in the gospel, as I remember his work in my life, this attitude opens up spaces where then God can show up with experiences that remind me, that move me, that truly ignite something in me. And I can think back to a number of instances in my life where writing in my journal and meditating on something with God just suddenly flooded the room with His presence. Or sitting there on that cliff at Cannon Beach and just experiencing the love of God in this beautiful creation. Or being in worship and experiencing just the power of God and the presence of God. These are all places where God has met me. He doesn't meet me that way every time. Sometimes I just come tired and I'm glad I showed up. But over time, this posture of wanting to be reverent before God changes me. So how do I know when I have a proper fear of God, a proper awe of God? Psalm 112 gives us a very clear picture of that. It says, blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in His commands. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in His commands. When I have a proper fear or awe of God in my life, I argue less. I submit more joyfully to God's way of doing things. I'm not negotiating exceptions. I'm not questioning His judgment or making excuses Instead, even when he doesn't explain his reasoning, or I can't understand it, or it contradicts all the assumptions that I've been taught by other people, I place my trust in his proven character. And I do what he says. His commands are a delight to me because I'm doing them for the one whose love is everything to me. My life is becoming not an expression of my own will, but of his will. Blessed are those who fear the Lord and find great delight in His commands. But in this life, it's always going to be a battle to learn that kind of awe before God that flows into obedience. Other fears keep crowding in and we resist His commands. We convince ourselves we know better. We, we say, put the spotlight back on me, and then we realize, on me? I don't have anything here, <laughs> and now I'm alone against all these fears. When I'm arguing with God and negotiating exceptions and making excuses, of course I'm going to begin fearing other authorities again. I'm adapting my priorities toward the wrong outcomes. That's called sin. It's rebellion against God, and the wages of sin is always death. But when God brings this to our attention, He doesn't do it to shame us. He doesn't do, us to, do it to make us cower in the corner. He does it to free us from the power of fear. So as we move towards celebrating communion together, it's an opportunity for each one of us to confess, to turn away from these fears that have come from putting ourselves at the center again. 
to receive his mercy and once again stand in awe of a God whose greatest revelation of himself is not smoke and clouds at the top of a mountain. It's a cross on top of a hill, a cross that he is nailed to. So where are you today? Do you have fears that cause you to resist God's direction? Where have other gods and authorities and priorities received the fear that only God deserves in your life? God wants to free you from this. He wants to communicate his cleansing love to you this morning. So I want to just invite you as you take the bread and the juice in preparation, let's take a moment to silently confess anything that's come to mind. Maybe the Spirit is stirring something in you today. You have something that you just want to make right with God again to recalibrate your vision toward Him. First Corinthians 11, we read, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes invite you to stand. And as we uh, take time to worship, I want to remind you our prayer team is available. Perhaps there's a fear that you just need someone to help you with in prayer. And our prayer team would love to meet you there. Maybe there's another need that you are carrying today, and there too they'd love to stand with you. I want to pray this prayer from Revelation chapter 15. It's called the song of God's servant Moses and to the Lamb, and of the Lamb. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who won't fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are holy. All nations will come and fall down in worship before you, for your acts of justice have been revealed. God, you are worthy of all our praise today. Be glorified in our songs. Be glorified in our lives, Lord. May we be those who are, who are delighted to fear you and delight to conform our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.